We're right at the point uh, in Esther where uh, everything's going to turn upside down. Um, we've seen a little bit of it in the last couple of weeks. Uh, you know, for example, Esther, a uh, poor Jew- Jewish girl, becomes queen of the country. Um, her her uh, adopted father, Mordecai, uh, meant for shame and dishonor, is, is raised up and paraded through the streets uh, by his enemy. Haman has been shamed. Haman, the uh, persecutor of the Jews. Haman, the one who seeks to murder all of God's people. Esther has promised Mordecai that she is going to try and intercede on behalf of the Jewish people. She's scared. She's got a lot riding on this. But today is her day. Or tonight is her night. Tonight is when she makes her move. Esther is going to begin the rescue of her people from annihilation tonight. Uh, before we read, I just wanted to point out a few things. Um, uh, today's sermon title is called No Quarter, and we'll see how that works as we go through. But I do want to notice, um, we, we read from the New King James here. You have uh, New King James Bibles in your pews. And one of the things that Neil and I were talking about is sometimes you'll see in your New King James Bible, or even up here, you'll see words in italics. Um, italics does not mean uh, in the New King James Bible what it means in English, which is emphasize this. Uh, italics in the New King James is an example of a place where translators have inserted words that aren't in the Hebrew. Um, it's because Hebrew as a language is maybe a little bit less precise than English, or just perhaps the syntax of English uh, grammar doesn't quite work the same way, and so translators try to give us a little bit of help. So if you see that up there, don't be uh, confused. Also, you'll see sometimes when we're preaching, I'll have things in brackets, and that'll, that'll come up. That's where, um, based on some of you know, my work and, and research, or just to smooth things out, I've kind of just taken the New King James language and maybe updated it a little bit to give us a little more of a sense of what's happening on the ground, to give us a, a sense of the tone or the feel of the text in a way that won't go against um, the actual language. Uh, and if, you, if I ever skip over one of those things and you're curious about it, please don't hesitate to ask me. I'm, I'm happy to um, explain decisions that I've made. Uh, with all that in mind, let's uh, stand together and read. Uh, this is Esther chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. Uh, Esther begins the rescue of her people and she shows no quarter. So the king and Haman went to dine with Queen Esther. This is the second time she's invited them, and they're coming here. This is on the second day, the second invitation. At the banquet of wine, or the wine course, the drinking portion of the meal, the king again said to Esther, What is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Up to half the kingdom. It will be done. Then Queen Esther answered and said, perhaps demurely, perhaps uh, cunningly, difficult to say. If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given me at my petition and my people at my request, for we've been sold out, my people and I, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. Had we been sold as male and female slaves, I would have held my tongue, even though our enemy could never compensate for your loss, O king. So Xerxes or Ahasuerus sputtered, saying to Queen Esther, Who is this guy? And where is he? Who's the one who had the nerve to do this? And Esther said, The adversary and enemy is this wicked Haman. So Haman was terrified before the king and queen. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine banquet and stormed out, went into the palace garden. But Haman stood before Queen Esther, pleading for his life, for he saw that evil was determined him against, against him by the king. When the king returned from the palace garden to the place of the banquet of wine, 
Haman had fallen across the couch where Esther was. Then the king said, will he also assault the queen while I am in the house? As the word left the king's mouth, Haman's face was covered with dread. Now Harbona, one of the eunuchs, said to the king, look, the shaft, the pole, 75 feet high, which Haman made for Mordecai who spoke good on the king's behalf, is standing at the house of Haman. Then the king said, impale him on it. So they impaled Haman on that shaft that he had prepared for Mordecai. And then, and only then, did the king's wrath subside. You may be seated. If you were to sum it up, you were to say, you would say, Esther boldly and courageously speaks out on behalf of the people. And then she coldly remains silent and offers their enemy no quarter. I'd like to run through the text, just note a few things that that pop out, although the sense of the text is pretty clear. Um, They're at the the dinner, this is the second time the the king has has been drinking a little bit, he's feeling good, and then he asks her a second time, or a third time, Esther, what do you really want? And she says, give me my people, we're going to die. And the king says, whoa! And he starts to get upset. Who did it? Oh, the one who's right here, conveniently located right next to you, king, in case you have your sword with you. He's very, very close. You can just do what needs to be done. The king flips out, loses it, runs out. This is actually something he's done before in in the story uh, of Esther. He's he's been in places where he's been angry and he needs to think it through. So, I mean, maybe he's going to change his mind, but he comes back in and, ha, 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 I didn't hear you laughing. But uh, Haman has tripped over and fallen on Esther, and the king believes that he's trying to ravish her in his own house. And that's it for Haman. We'll just notice a few things. I mean, Queen Esther. I mean, from the very get-go, we know how this is going to go for Esther. She's in command. Queen Esther, not just some girl. I mean, we know Xerxes uh, likes the ladies. Uh, Not just any girl. This is Queen Esther. And he, uh, again, for the third time, whatever you want, darling, I will do it. In verse 3, the queen answered and said, If I have found favor, we should be laughing at this point. If you've found favor, of course you have. He's, he's let you speak to him. He's offered you everything you want three times. He's gone to two dinners. What, what, of course he's found favor with you, Esther. And what is her petition? My people have been sold out. I, we've mentioned it a few times. Haman, like the Nazis, expected to make a lot of money on his murder of the Jews. The Jews were wealthy, they were a wealthy uh, minority, uh, and he expected to plunder them as he murdered them. So they've been sold out to his pocketbook. And Esther makes it clear at the end of verse 4, she she says, well even, you know, if we'd been, (laughs) she's definitely playing it up here, even if we'd just been sold into, you know, servanthood or slavery, well then I would have kept my mouth shut, king. Even though it would have cost you a lot. It would have cost you this, this minority uh, of people in your kingdom who have been good, who, who pay their taxes, who, who do their thing. And, and, and king, it would also cost you, well, me. Your loss would be complete, king. Economic, social, sexual. You're going to lose it all because of what this guy has done. You'll see I've updated that language there. In the Hebrew, it literally says, King Xerxes said, and he said. It's like, who is this guy? Where is he? Who had the nerve to do this? The king's ready to go. 
In verse uh, 7, Then the king arose in his wrath from the wine banquet and went out into the palace garden. Like I noted, he's, uh, Haman looks like he's in a bad position, but we might even want to say for now. Because once the king's left, he's shown that he has a tendency to sort of get out of his um, immediate craziness and listen to advice, maybe, take, uh, maybe change his mind on a few things or get some, some counsel. So it could be that right now is, an, is a chance for, for Haman to, to make his move. The king's gone, the king's huffing and heaving and thinking. For now, evil is determined against Haman. And we'll notice that Esther doesn't actually say, King, you need to kill this guy. She says, I want my people. So Haman's got a chance. He's got a fighting chance right now, still. In verse 8, when the king returns to the palace, he finds Haman fallen on the couch where Esther was, as the New King James puts it. Well, as you may be aware, in in the ancient Near East, you recline to eat, so she's on a couch, maybe even like a bed, and she's eating grapes, and she's seeing Haman flipping out. He's like, please, 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 and she just, one more grape, kind of looks at him. And please, 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 Esther, anything, I'll do anything, you've you got to help me out. And she pops another grape and looks at him. And he, he runs up to her, and he's, he's down on his knees, he's begging, and then he falls on top of her. And then the king walks in, and his fate is sealed. Esther's calculating. She's cold. She encourages him to beg with her silence. She encourages him to to lose his head. And then, of course, the result. The king, not quite sure what he wants to do with Haman, has a convenient servant, Harbona, who says, Hey! Didn't Haman make, like, a big shaft right outside of his house? 75 feet tall, really tall. And wasn't he going to impale Mordecai on it? Mordecai, the guy who helped you out, king, the guy that we found out last week got paraded through the streets. Mordecai, you're good buddy, king. Isn't that the Haman we're talking about here? You know, I think I can think of a really good place for Haman to end up. Uh, As we noted, uh, it's not just that they're going to kill him on the pole. It's the idea that his body is exposed, uh, humiliates him and his family and his friends. Uh, He he dies a shameful death, not unlike crucifixion. Um, And everyone reviles him. And then, at that moment, the king's wrath subsides. And man, you've got to look at Haman's face. Let's just look at some of the ironies of what's going on with Haman. I mean, it, it, when it starts out, how things start. How things start. Uh, Haman, he's going to be exalted by the king, in his mind. He's already been exalted. He's second in, in command of the kingdom. You might think of him as a prime minister. He's like, he's the guy. And, and then, ironic reversal. Mordecai, his, his mortal enemy, the one who he hates, becomes the one who's exalted and promoted and, and walked through town. Haman's going to plunder the Jews. He's going to execute his, his Jewish enemies. He's going to take all their stuff. He's going to be enriched. And then we're going to find out next week that Mordecai ends up receiving all of Haman's stuff. I mean, really rough for him and his family. Haman's going to impale his dirty enemy Mordecai on this shaft. No, no, no. He's impaled on his own pole. And you're thinking about all of these coincidences, all these change, all all these ironies. And you've got to ask yourself, how does this happen? How do you go from up here to down here so quickly? What kind of world are we living in where we have such jaw-dropping reversals in in this story? How does it happen? 
Well, if you just, let's just step back to just before our text today. This is um, in the end of chapter 6. We're, we're in chapter 7. At the end of chapter 6, let's just look back and see what's happened after uh, Mordecai has been paraded through the streets and Haman has been humiliated for the first time. He's sitting down with his wife Zeresh and all his friends and he tells them everything that's happened. His wise men, his wife Zeresh, says to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of Jewish descent, you will not prevail against him, but will surely fall before him. Supportive wife. The, uh, just just what, you're, what you're hoping for in a, in a life partner. And you've got to ask yourself, how does she know? What, what, what kind of world does she live in? What kind, of, what kind of sense, what kind of understanding does she have about how the world works? That she's able to say, say these things. What law is at work? And you could even call it a prophecy I mean, in, of sorts. I mean, she does tell him what's going to happen to him. What kind of law is at work in her prophecy? And by law, I don't mean like, um, you know, a law law, but, but the rules of cause and effect. What kind of world are we living in? How do things happen? How do things work out such that this happens and not that? What kind of law is at work in Zeresh's prophecy in the way that she sees the world? Well, I've thought of three like to bring out. There's the law of just desserts, and we'll talk about that in a moment. There's the law of just desserts. There's also the law of direct divine intervention. We'll talk about this. Maybe Zeresh thinks that God likes to get his hands dirty regularly. Or perhaps, third, imminent divine action. Imminent not meaning, um, not with the eye, meaning about to happen, but imminent meaning, meaning in the midst or right, right inside things. Imminent divine action. Let's look at each of these and think about what kind of world Esther lives in. The first option, the law of just desserts. Uh, we have this from Proverbs, um, which is a cool verse. It says, The one whose hatred is covered by deceit, his wickedness will be revealed before the assembly. So if you're a person with hate in your heart and you're hiding it, it's going to be revealed in public. I mean, the, the, could we describe Haman any, any, any more clearly? Or following this, the one who digs a pit will fall into it. If you set a trap for someone, I don't know, maybe impale them on a 75-foot pole, you're probably going to end up on that pole. And the one who rolls a stone will have it roll back on him. Notice that the Proverbs don't talk about what God's doing. They just talk about this is how the world is. You know, Haman's a bad guy. He's hateful, he's vain, he's greedy. If you're hateful, vain, and greedy long enough, you're going to end up exposed. And notice that God just watches God's up in the, in the, in the rafters, and he's, he's watching the whole thing unfold. Hey, pass the popcorn. This is going to be great. I mean, that's kind of the idea that we get in the Proverbs for just desserts. This is um, exactly what Paul uh, brings out to us in Galatians 6, 7, and 2 Corinthians 9, 6. He says, you reap what you sow. And that's become a part of our Christian patois. You reap what you sow. Whatever you put in the ground, that's what you're going to get. You, you, are you going to plant hatred and greed and vanity? Well, you're going to reap the rewards of that. So maybe Zeresh thinks that, but I don't think that's the case because she, she makes a point. She says, if Mordecai, before whom you've begun to fall, is of Jewish descent, you will not prevail against him. 
The fact that she adds Jewish descent means that she's not just looking at her husband and being like, you're a really bad guy and things are going to go badly for you. She thinks there's something else going on in the world. It's not just just desserts. God is somehow involved. And that brings up the second possibility that God is directly involved. Direct divine intervention. You have to wonder how all these coincidences have piled up in Esther's story. Provincial girl ends up queen. Her adopted father ends up it being in just the right place at just the right time to uncover a plot against the king. You think of, of, of Haman um, making the mistakes that he makes. Everything seems like it's been set just so. So that when the primal moment happens, it's ready. That Haman can't get out of it because God has been at work. We remember in Esther 4.14, one of the most famous verses from this, uh, this book, for such a time as this. Esther, maybe, who knows? Maybe you've been put here for such a time as this. Maybe, he, he says, Mordecai says, you've come to this. You've come to the kingdom. But presumably someone put her there. Maybe God is working the same way that he's always worked in the Red Sea, parting it. Maybe he's working like Jesus' miraculous healings. Direct intervention means that God suspends the rules and says physics don't apply anymore. I'm going to take a, I'm going to, I'm just going to do what I'm going to do. And there's nothing you can do about it. And maybe as, as Esther is entering the, the king's throne room, and, and you'll remember uh, in chapter 5, uh, if the king doesn't you know, put the scepter down, she's going to be immediately executed. And maybe at that moment, maybe it's the case that the king is looking at her and he's like, mm, I'm going to get her. And then God changes his heart. And then he says, Woo, you are beautiful. Keep coming. But I'm not sure that that is quite right. I mean, if that were the case, if that's what Zeresh thought, if that's what's going on in the book of Esther, then surely, surely, someone would have mentioned God. That's that third option, imminent divine action. Look at this. In, in this one, uh, nature's laws are not suspended or bent. God's not stopping physics. God's working within nature. The Holy Spirit, I say here, nudges here and there, touching off a cascade of small effects that add up to some very large events. If you're familiar with quantum theory, um, which I'm really not, but I've read the Wikipedia article. And basically, in, in quantum mechanics, uh, electrons are never really here or there. there there's no, we don't know of a law that's going to place an electron here or there, but it has to end up somewhere, and when we look at it, we find out where it's been, where it's, where it's, where it's ended up. Well, that's how scientists will say that we have like creativity or, um, or uh, an openness um, to the future in the world, that the, 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 the nature, nature itself has a place for creativity, for unpredictability. And maybe it's right in between, in the interstices, in, to, in, the, in the seams, in between this and that. That's where the Holy Spirit's at work in, in, this, in this book, in this, in this story, and really, honestly, in our lives. Maybe that's the, the place where it, where it all happens, where God pushes this way just a little bit, just, pu- just, just there a little bit, a little bit, and then over time, massive, crazy, wild effects are seen. You've heard, you know, the, what is it, the joke? Um, in Japan, the butterfly bats its wings, and then there's a tsunami in California, or something like that, where these, these small things have these very unpredictable, very large consequences. 
Notice then that because God's working within nature itself, he works in concert with, not over and against human will and action. God doesn't change Xerxes from this kind of guy to that kind of guy. He doesn't change Haman from this kind of guy to that kind of guy. He doesn't even change really Esther. Esther is still scared. She's still worried. She's still her. And yet, and yet in the midst of that, something powerful happens. If we were to go back to an, an older um, language of theology, we would say this is providence. That God has the world set up in such a way that, that God can move in it behind the scenes, to make amazing and sometimes terrifying things happen. And I think that when Zeresh says, the Jewish people, she's seen that. She's seen the marvelous changes that have happened with this people. That they're where they are and not where they ought to be, these small, unlovely people. That they're lifted up, that they survive, that they keep going. And she sees that and she says, God's doing something and sometimes it's behind the scenes with these people. And when you go up against them, you are in trouble. That was sort of an aside. Moving forward, I think the biggest problem, here's the deal, a lot of you, a lot of you out there, especially those of you um, veterans uh, who have been in the military, also people in law enforcement, um, it's probably not a big deal to you when you see uh, the way Esther treats Haman. You're like, yep, he got what he deserved. Yep, he had it coming. I, I, I balk a little bit. I do. Uh, I'm a softie. Um, my, my, my heartstrings are easy to tug. And sometimes I wonder, um, where's the mercy? Um, if we go to the next slide, where's the mercy? Um, you have to ask yourself, is Esther cruel? Uh, why, why doesn't Esther uh, give a second chance to Haman? She's a person of God. Presumably she's made mistakes in her life. God's forgiven her. Why, why doesn't she allow that to happen? And, and, and moreover, what of, what of God's forgiveness? Isn't God the kind of God who says, all right, you went off the rails and I'm going to take you back. I'm going to bring you right back. And, and for those of us, let's just pause for a second. For those of us who are totally cool with the way that Haman ends up, I mean, is there not a moment where you, a gut check? I mean, who were you before Christ? Who are you sometimes even in Christ? Are you the kind of person who occasionally needs a second chance? Uh, the kind of person who needs a little bit of mercy here and there? A little bit of forgiveness here and there? Maybe a lot of forgiveness? Maybe a lot of mercy? Sometimes I wonder when I look at people in scripture, I'm like, ah, yes, we got him. Well, that's because that's, I'm thinking of him as, as, of Haman as him and not me. But if I step in and I realize the kind of person that I am, I really do value God's mercy, God's forgiveness. And I wonder, I wonder, is Esther really doing a good thing here? Surely, the, we'll see the, the king's plan, Xerxes' plan to save the Jews, um, well, the plan to save the Jews is not going to require Haman to live or die. Do we really need to have his blood on our hands too? Need the next uh, move forward. Yes. That's the Jolly Roger. Uh, that's a pirate flag, if you don't know. Uh, it's, this, this one's from the 1820s. Uh, this is a real pirate flag. This is actually what they looked like. The ones that we see in uh, the Johnny Depp movies is not accurate. They did not, it, well, it's close, but they didn't have the kind of detail uh, back then. That, and, and pirates weren't maybe as talented as, as Susie in, in their weaving. And so they didn't 
necessarily have uh, the right kind of flag. This is a black flag. This is a red flag. This was um, grabbed in the 1780s by a, a, an English uh, ship that uh, captured a pirate ship. Now, if you have uh, the black flag up and you're a pirate, what that means is, I'm a pirate. Um, <laughs> and so when you're sailing up to another ship, you usually don't have your black flag out. If they're a French ship, you have your f- French flag. And then right when you're next to them, like, with the cannons right on them, then you throw up the black flag like, hey, surprise! And, th- and the people on the ship are like, no! And what do they do? Here, ask the question. What do they do? They-, they see the black flag, and then they, what, they go to arms? No way. They throw up their hands... And they say, take whatever you want, just leave us alone, we're going to go home, no problem, you know. Uh, Why do they do that? Uh, Because if they don't, if they don't, then the pirates take down the black flag, and they put up the red flag, which we have here. It's not as popular because it doesn't probably evoke the the, the sense of death and and dread to us. Um, But what it meant, what this meant, this flag right here, it's the pirate equivalent of no quarter. No quarter. No quarter asked, none given. Oh, you don't want to give up your stuff? <laughs> We're going to kill all of you. And don't beg when we've won, because it won't work. Uh, the next one there, we got Blackbeard. There he is. Yeah, that's a, that's a photo that they took of him. It's a little low res, but that's, um, that's, that's him. Notice, that, notice Blackbeard, Edward Teach. Notice he's got flames coming out of his ears, right? This is, let's check this out. This, is, this guy, was, he was savvy. Savvy, pirate word. He, uh, what he would do is he would, um, he would get up on the, on the crow's nest, and he had um, flares that were attached, woven into his beard, and he would light them on fire. Literally, this is not a joke. He would do this. And, and the point was, you see this guy, and you're like, dude, his face is on fire. We're in trouble. Give up! Right? Because the last thing you want to do when you're fighting a guy with his face on fire is test him. You know what he's going to do. He's going to throw up the red flag. No quarter. Now you've got to ask yourself, why do they have the black flag and the red flag? Why don't they just run the red flag all the time? What is it about no quarter that's so important to the pirates? No quarter means we're going to eliminate the threat entirely. No quarter means we don't have to worry about, you know, someone ending up in the hands of the English, you know, the people who are pursuing us, maybe telling them where we are, because they're going to be hanging from a yardarm. But maybe even more importantly, once you've thrown up the red flag once, And once you've eliminated the threat entirely, the next time you put up the black flag, no one's going to test you. You have stopped the threat from reappearing. You have stopped the chance that anyone's going to come after you a second time. As soon as they see the black flag, they're going to throw their hands up because they know if they don't, they're going to end up walking the plank. Um, we don't have time, so I'm going to skip the next slide. Um, but the point of the next slide is to recognize, and we've talked about this a few times in this series, that Haman is, is the son of Agag, the Amalekite. Haman is the descendant of the Jews' worst enemy. He is a symbol of evil. He is a symbol of utter and complete evil. 
He is a symbol of the kind of thing that you have to stamp out because if you don't, it's going to come back and bite you again and again and again and again. He is a virus. He is a virus of violence. He is a virus of death. God sees Haman and his virus as pattern forming. When you've got Hamans around, violence doesn't stop. It keeps going over and over and over. The evil gets worse and worse and worse. And that's the reason why God gives Haman no quarter. Esther gives Haman no quarter because this violence, this evil has to be stamped out so it never comes back. Stop it now. Prevent its return. God gives no quarter to sin. He gives no quarter to sin in the death of Christ. Listen to this. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God didn't come imputing our sins to us. He imputed them to Christ. Think of the logic behind this. All the sin, all of the evil, all of the violence, all of the circular, pattern-forming, destructive nature that we have is taken from us and put on him. So that when his body is destroyed, the sin goes with it, completely eradicated, utterly annihilated. We participate in Christ's crucifixion. Uh, Look at this uh, from Romans. Um, Our old man was crucified with him that the body of sin might be done away with. This sinful body is destroyed at the cross that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been set free from sin. For the death that Christ died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Just as Esther raises the red flag with Haman, God raises the red flag with our sin in Christ, puts it all on him, annihilates it, destroys it in his death, in his crucifixion, utterly slaughters sin at the cross. Look at this. Um, just uh, uh, Maybe this is crazy, but... Let, let's, let's compare the death of Haman and the death of Jesus. Let's just look at them side by side. Let's do that. Notice that the death of Haman, Haman instantiates, Haman represents virulent evil. Haman is a virus. He represents all evil. Look at Jesus. Jesus willingly becomes sin for us. Haman's death temporarily purges virulent evil. The Jews are safe for a while, but give them a few centuries and the anti-Semites will come back. Haman's death temporarily purges evil from the world of the Jews. Jesus' death permanently purges sin from those who believe. Haman's death makes the Jews' survival possible. Jesus' death makes our peace possible. When I say peace, I don't just mean the absence of war. I mean shalom, whole, full life with God. It's all possible because sin has been done away with. It has no power anymore. It has been crucified.
God raises the red flag. God gives sin no quarter in the person and in the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that means we have to ask a question. Are we living as if that's true? Is God's no quarter approach to sin working in our lives? You see, before Christ came, we had an excuse. Namely, that sin infected us and we couldn't get away from it. But now, because we have been crucified with him and our bodies have been purged of sin once and for all, when we let it back in, it's on us. Do we have the same vision of what it means to purge sin, to raise the red flag from our lives, or have we become a little complacent with this or that thing? Brothers and sisters, you are free. You are no longer a slave. Are you living like it? Let's pray. Father, we confess um, that you're a no-quarter God when it comes to sin. You don't take prisoners. You don't let anyone off the hook. And yet, God, in your gracious mercy, you put it all on Christ. You raised the red flag in his body, in his death, that any, anyone who believes can claim freedom for themselves. God, we confess that and we worship you for it. You are good. You have been exceedingly good to us in this gift. Stir up your spirit in us that we will live like it. Stir up your spirit in this church to be with the orphans. That as we take our freedom from sin forward into the world, that we will be people who are your peace to it. God, you are exceedingly good, and we bless you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.